We talk a lot about copy on this podcast. I mean, it's in the name, the Copywriter Club podcast. So over the past few years, we've spent hours talking about persuasion and sales and calls to action and dozens of other copywriting strategies and tactics. We don't often talk about content, although the last couple of episodes, uh, we have talked about content, but it is a really big part of the work that many copywriters do. So today's guest on the podcast is content writer and strategist, Sue Bonus. And we asked Sue why more copywriters should take on content projects. We also talked with her about the things that she's done that had the biggest impact on her business how disciplined she is with her schedule, and a lot more. So stick around to hear what she had to share with us. Before we do all of that, though, this episode is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. We recently rebuilt the entire back end of the Underground to make it easier to find the training and resources that members of the Underground have access to. Everything from creating the perfect proposal, which is one of the trainings in the Underground, to running a successful sales call, which is another training that's in there, to more than 40 in-depth newsletters on topics like persuasion, overcoming objections, managing your time, getting more done. I'm barely scratching the surface here. There are monthly coaching calls, weekly copy critiques, a fantastic group of supportive copywriters in our exclusive Facebook group. Check it all out at thecopywriterunderground.com. And one more thing before we get to our interview with Sue, I feel like I'm going on and on here, but I need to introduce my guest host for the day, James Turner. James is a conversion copywriter, marketing collaborator who's worked in SaaS, tech, and education, and e-commerce, and about... I don't know, 50 other niches. I'm going to ask him about that in just a second. What's more, James has a friend going back six or seven years uh, at parties. I've called him my wingman uh, as he introduces me around. He's uh, a bit of an extrovert, which is an exception around copywriters. Welcome back to the show, James. Hi, Rob. Thanks. It's great to be back. So, And you don't have a niche, right? Or do you have a niche? I mean, you've worked in lots of niches. No, I remain nicheless. Okay. You're one of the few. Mm. <laughs> we, we may we may have to like sell you a program on choosing a niche or something someday. We'll see. I'd buy that. Okay, so let's get to our interview with Sue and hear what she has to say about being a content writer. I've actually wanted to be a writer since grade three. So that was exciting. And I actually have my grade seven autobiography on my bookshelf over there. And it... Uh, it says wants to be a writer. So I guess as I grew up, it was like, how do I actually make that happen, right? Because the writer that I wanted to be was like the writers that I read as a child, right? Because I was always a big reader. And so I wanted to be like Gordon Corman or Shel Silverstein or Lois Lowery. And then I was like, but I need to make a living at this. And so how do I do that? And I became a big magazine reader when I was in uh, high school. And so always liked those elements um, of writing. And so I was like, how do I make uh, this uh, work? So I applied for an internship after I finished my bachelor's degree in history and English, pretty typical story uh, where I could do the most uh, reading in. And uh, I got my dream job um, through my dream internship at a general interest magazine here in Canada. So the magazine, I was lucky enough for it to turn from a weekly, uh, sorry, from a monthly into a weekly. And so we all got hired and then 
And two years later, unfortunately, the magazine got folded and we all lost, lost our jobs. And so sad day. But at that point, I was starting to think like, who are these freelancers coming in and out of our office who seem to write all the great stories and have this kind of lifestyle where they're able to do a lot of writing. And what I wanted to do was a lot of writing, right? I didn't want to get into another job where I would be like, still working my way way up doing the kind of work um, that you do in, in entry-level positions. I just wanted to be writing right away. So I thought this freelance thing might be for me. And so I started writing in technology, mostly for magazines and newspapers, um, started in tech because it was 2002. And that was a sort of a boom time for that niche. Um, and there was lots of publications to write for. And I, I'm naturally the person who likes to write, um, who likes to explore technology in terms of like how it meets the consumer. I'm definitely not a, a programming person, but I understood enough about it to make a go of that one, be naturally interested. Um, and then over the years, I've added other niches and specialties. I moved into uh, writing about entrepreneurship and careers. Um, I've written about business, just things that are adjacent to technology or new places to explore. Then when I went and got my PhD in English, um, which I did following a successful master's where I discovered that it was like fun to research and explore about like our early Canadian magazine history is what I wrote my uh, master's thesis on. I decided to maybe now that I'm familiar with educational institutions to pitch them. And so that became my focus after that. Um, so now I work a lot for higher ed. Um, I do writing like blog content and still a lot of articles, journalism type stuff only for alumni magazines and research magazines, that kind of thing. And use my interest in that kind of content to create content for readers outside of the university where I'm taking maybe an interesting science uh, topic and translating it for the general reader. And I feel passionate about that because I think there's a lot of interesting research out there that the public doesn't really know a lot about. And so it's fun to get that information out there, get some recognition for uh, the people who are doing this great research. I'm always, after I do my, I, uh, stories I'm thinking like I'm glad somebody is looking into that and it's a, such a great um great field I think for um con communicating that information I feel like what I brought with me though is always the storytelling and the journalism uh that's been at the heart of my writing and uh you know even though I'm doing more content less journalism now it's uh it's really thinking about how to tell those stories how to uh inform people get that out there and then freelancing has stuck for me it's been this is actually my 20 year anniversary of being in business since 2002 so it's just really for me worked as a lifestyle and a um, I really like the freedom of it. I like to travel. So that's um, allowed me to do that in the summertime, take time off when my editors are off kind of thing. And I like the freedom of working from home. I'm disciplined to create my own schedule. And so it's all been a lot of fun. And a few years ago, I was thinking, this might be my only job. And so how do I keep making it work? And that's one of the reasons I joined the think tank is like, how do I keep going with this, um, learn new tips and that kind of thing? Because I'd never been part of a formal group, even though I'd had freelancer friends and that kind of thing. I thought it would be fun to uh, move that in a new direction. So yeah, that we've covered a lot of ground there. So um, I want to go back to, you know, where you started writing for these publications, you know, as you were starting your freelancing. Um, how, first of all, how did you find your clients? And then a second question to that, is there a difference between um, finding clients that are publications versus finding clients who need 
content for blogs, case studies, that kind of thing? Do you pitch them differently? Um, so anyway, two, two questions in one there. Yeah, I guess the similarity in terms of pitching corporate clients, I, I call them corporate, even though I'm writing mostly for institutions and places that have publications, is that the, you know, a magazine has a fairly strict format, right? You pitch a feature, if you're pitching a feature for, you know, the New Yorker, it's going to be like a certain word length, it's going to be a certain topics that they cover and that kind of thing. So there's those constraints there when you're pitching for journalism, as opposed to, um, there's still, I think, constraints in corporate, like, if they don't have a blog, they're not likely to hire for blog posts, but they might be convinced too, if you can convince them that it's a good strategy. So I feel like, whereas I'm pitching myself, both when I'm um, pitching magazines or publications, I I'm pitching myself, and I'm pitching myself to corporate, like as in my own experience and that kind of thing, and my um, my niche experience, I feel like uh, there's a lot more constraints with magazines. There's a lot more... Um, the pay rate is uh, fairly set. There's not a lot of uh, wiggle room there. And with um, publications, they're really focused on the story idea, right? So you're trying to pitch a particular story and you might be pitching it to a technology section, and but you know that um, a certain kind of story is going to work. So you're really focused on the story idea as, as long uh, alongside yourself. Um, Whereas with pitching a client, you're mostly pitching yourself and your own expertise and your past experience in the niche. So, Sue, um, you know, you shared your story and not necessarily the timeline, but you've been in business as a writer for a couple decades, right? So I'm curious, like you, how you've had the lasting power, because a lot of the copywriters we talk about in the show have been at it for a couple of years or, you know, maybe five years, um, but you've been able to do it and to maintain, you know, a living as a writer, which is such an aspiration. So what do you think that you've done over the last you know decade or two that has helped you create a lasting career as a writer? I think tenacity, like trying to really being interested in making it work. And so finding ways to shift and um, realizing that if I want to work in a certain way, um, I need to like find the right niche or, you know, work for the right clients or that kind of thing. I mean, it, it's interesting because I tell my students, like I, there isn't really a senior freelancer. There's somebody with 20 years of experience, but that, you know, one of my young students can leap over that with a great story idea, for example. Right. So it's like both keeping it interesting for myself and then make sure, making sure that I am keeping it, I'm still being relevant to the audiences that um, that I'm pitching. So, you know, it's no longer, I would like to be writing 3000 art word articles today, but that's no longer what people are looking for kind of thing. Right. Or I'm, I'm interested in like finding out what clients are looking for, what publications are looking for and paying attention to that. Right. And, and I guess balancing between what I'm interested in writing and what the market is demanding kind of thing. Like I used to write book reviews quite a bit and uh, it's not so much a big part of my business because it doesn't pay all that well. Right. So you have to accept that if you are wanting to write book reviews, it's going to be for, for less or nothing these days and kind of adjust the way that you're doing business to account for that. And I think finding the balance of clients that allows you to do the kind of writing that you like to do um, is what has kept it interesting for me and to um, keep changing and trying new things, right? I started out in technology and then I got a little bored because <laughs> I'd already written about all the tech stuff and, and could identify that there's new markets. For example, if you in 2002, when I was writing about technology, there were like 
three publications that I could write for even just locally. There was a big section in our uh, national newspaper that just did technology case studies, right? That's not the case anymore. Um, in that newspaper, there's hardly, there isn't a section called technology anymore, right? So I knew that I needed to, to find uh, a new niche and, and just branch out my niches. I still take my old tech niche along with me because I still tend to be the writer who does the tech stories in what, whichever other niche I'm in, but um, just identifying like, oh, a niche is, is closing and then what other niches am I interested in, right? And then realizing which ones are helpful um, and um, where people need writing. And I guess like, how do you stay on top of those changes? I mean, part of it is just as a practitioner, you're witnessing those changes, but how do you recommend we get ahead of those changes so that as the landscape changes, we're not surprised as a writer and like, oh, I'm offering something that's no longer relevant. How do, how can we stay ahead of it? I do a lot of reading of industry publications. And so I note what magazines are folding. And so therefore, what might not be a, a great place to pitch or, or a direction to go in that kind of thing. So I guess reading publications, I talk to people, I belong to a couple of professional associations uh, in Canada, and that helps to like talk with other freelancers. And then I guess just um, sometimes it's hard to know what is the next thing. So I will experiment, for example, and try a niche. And if it's not working out, then realize that, you know, I'll, I'll give myself some experiment time and say, let's try this for six months, see if it works, and then pivot if it doesn't work. Um, there's a niche that I really like writing in, which is careers, right? And there's not that many publications that write about working, despite the fact that we're all working for eight hours a day, right? So I would love to be like a full-time careers journalist or freelancer, that kind of thing, but it, it's not possible, right? So recognizing that I've written some on that, but I couldn't make it my full-time job, right? So just, I think like rolling with it to understand like what's possible and then just keeping an eye on what kind of uh, stuff is in demand and then deciding whether you want to be a part of that. I know social media is a lot in demand right now. It's, I've decided actively that's not something I'm, you know, offering as my frontline service, right? I'm uh, focusing uh, on content and long form. And even though I, I can do and do uh, social media along with my articles for, for clients, it's not something that I lead with. So just, I think, deciding both like what works for you and then what is working in the marketplace. So you love writing content. A lot of content writers, you know, they, they get a few months under their belt, maybe a couple of years, and they start looking at the enticing field of sales copy and thinking, I'm done with blog posts. I'm done with case studies. I don't want to write another ebook. I'm going to start writing sales pages or sales emails, but you haven't done that. Um, help us understand why more of us should be writing blog posts or other content. Like what, what is the, the thing that has kept you doing that? So that's been one of my revelations of joining the think tank is like, I've actually learned a lot about content. Um, so I should say copywriting and conversion, all these new terms that I didn't know before funnel. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's because I came from that journalism background where we are all concerned with like the length of the story. So is it a 3000 word feature? Or is it a 500 word front of book uh, thing? And I totally understand how um, copywriters, you know, because that form writing emails, etc, is close to sales, it's a great way to uh, make money while still being creative kind of thing. But I think because where I've come from, 
from is content. I just really like like finding the story and putting the words together in such a way that it makes something boring, interesting, right? I've written about everything over the years and it's, it's fun to take something that people would imagine they would never read an article <laughs> and make it palatable for them to do that. So I think that's what I get out of it. I like interviewing. I like to put people at the center of the story. And I find no matter who you're interviewing, and I mean, granted, I do get a lot of interesting people recommended to me when I'm doing profiles and that kind of thing. They're usually people who have accomplished a lot, but like the kinds of things, even if you, if you think you're interviewing somebody who might not be that interesting, there's always a story in there. And that's what I've always liked about it. Doing that, that journalistic style of writing where you're finding the story in it. And that story comes from people. And you're basically like the reporter, the observer telling that story uh, rather than dreaming it all up uh, as a copywriter might do. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that reporter angle and I'm glad to be able to do it in, uh, in content writing. So as a follow-up, why should more writers be excited, in your opinion, um, to write blogs and to write content? Like why should we, what are we missing that we should really get behind? Um, to That's my to, big question. Know, really I think this movement for more content. Yeah, I want to survey all of the copywriters and find out because I, I am always raising my hand to offer to <laughs> take everybody's blog posts that they don't want to write. And I, I am genuinely perplexed because I think like, uh, I think it's because that the, um, the content is not as immediate, uh, immediately important to an organization for the sale or for the for the win and the results, right? Because I mean, even I have a hard time. Like, I can't always guarantee that like having a monthly blog post is going to post boost your revenue by X, but I can guarantee that it's going to boost your authority if the blog post is by interviewed by me and and you know written in your voice, like ghost written, or I can suggest that you're going to be after a few of those blog posts established as an expert in your niche. So I definitely strongly believe in the, the power of content to do all those things, to build your brand, to build authority and that kind of thing. And, uh, and to tell your stories, right? So what I think people are, I don't know why people don't want to tell stories. <laughs> I don't think it's that, <laughs> that's it because I, uh, I've read some good email sequences that like do tell stories and have a lot of personality in it. I think it could be even that I just like doing um, words not less from me and, and more like making someone else's words and uh, look good. And I am the kind of the, the builder behind the scenes of the story writing content, bringing in those interviews and quotes and research and that kind of thing and, and creating something um, journalistic. Can we talk about the money that uh, we make with as content writers? You know, what is a typical project for you? You know, I, I think content sometimes gets this bad rap that everybody's paying 50 or $75 for a blog post, or, you know, there's all this competition in places like Upwork that drive the value down. Um, and that's not always true. So, you know, what, what could a competent, experienced content writer expect to earn from the kinds of projects that you work on? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's another challenge actually. And, and a, another point in favor of copywriters for keeping score is that they get to do the more regular work sometimes with like, uh, 
uh, emails twice a month kind of thing is a great thing for a business. Um, whereas content, again, as I mentioned, it's uh, harder to make that value uh, add. And so I do end up doing a lot of um, content that's like a one-off article in a uh, alumni or research magazine, right? And that totally raises the profile of the institution. I will write a, uh, a blog post or a series of blog posts, but they tend to come along at times when, you know, they need that kind of uh, profile raising. That might be just in my niche, and, and I know it is just in my niche, not particularly selling uh, in institutions, although they are, you know, trying to get people to enroll there. So there is an element of, of um, publicizing, but I think it's like possible to do um, content regularly. And I mean, my own goal is to keep pitching people who are interested in um, getting reg regular content for the reasons I mentioned of education and profile and stuff like that. So, I mean, I charge between like uh, four to 600 for blog posts. Most of those uh, involve interviews because I mostly write blog posts that are um, authority building and, and tell the news of, of the organization. So um, maybe I charge a little bit higher for that extra work. And, uh, but I think that's worthwhile. And I think that like a strong blog post that really communicates what the people within the organization are interested in and, and their viewpoint, I think is a stronger piece and journalism just is, can be stronger um, as a, as a way to convey things with, with quotes and, and research and, and that kind of thing. So I do think it's possible. It is a little bit less frequent and harder to find those kind of um, frequent as an email campaign um, type clients, but they are out there and I like writing for them. And and when you're charging that much, five, $600 per blog post, how much time is that taking you? Can you do five of these a week uh, where you know somebody might take a week to do a sales page? So maybe the work is kind of comparable if, you know, if you're stacking enough or is this you know, is it taking you a couple of days to do that kind of a thing? Well, it depends on the blog post. So if I did a one interview blog post and the interview takes like an hour and writing it up takes a couple of hours and then an edit process takes an hour, you know, it's about four or five hours work kind of thing for a, a blog post that's a simpler one. If I'm doing something that's more in depth or complex where I have to talk to two or three people, then it's more and I charge more based on, you know, the, the length of time, the length of the post, that kind of thing. Most of my posts are around like, 800 words or so, six to 800. And uh, yeah, so it's um, in terms of the time factor, I think you can um, fit in quite a few um, blog posts in a week. And mine tend to come, you know, along with other assignments. I'm working on a website here. I'm looking, I'm working on like two blog posts, two alumni magazine articles. I'm just looking at my whiteboard. And, uh, you know, so I kind of fit them in uh, that way. And you know, I'll have uh, maybe seven or eight clients at a time working on something for them. Um, I have a couple, uh, two or three retainers and, and so work for them regularly. But then a lot of the other is like regular repeat clients that are just in flux as they come. How do you juggle the workload? Because seven to eight clients at a time is a lot. And juggle that along with pitching and looking for the next the next project since some of those are not retainers. What is, how do you break that down, you know, week to week? Um, week to week, I have my whiteboard that I'm looking at again. And uh, then I have um, just regular organizational tools, like uh, make sure to write down all my deadlines and look at my week at the beginning of the week, figure out what is uh, the deadlines for this week and 
prioritize those, of course. I do try to fit in some regular um, pitch time, but I actually, about four times a year, I will reach out to all of my past clients just with an email. And uh, that usually seeds my <laughs> and my quarterly term uh, with clients uh, as I'm following up with them. Um, more will come in or, you know, somebody who didn't get back to me right away might get back to me in a few weeks with the project, that kind of thing. So I've got a little stream of them going. And then I always am on the lookout for new clients, just like I um, mentioned with, you know, my overall career, I've been like adding niches and clients. Uh, same thing, I'm always experimenting with new client areas, right? So since I've been working on uh, higher ed, like universities and colleges, I've also been lately reaching out to independent schools, uh, private schools. So that has been a nice uh, new source of clients, which I am confident to say I'm qualified for because I both teach and also write for their higher ed counterparts. And so, you know, once in, I am feeling like, let's try a new niche, then I'll go and look up uh, and create myself a little spreadsheet of the contact information and reach out to that new client base. And again, as with like cold or warm outreach, there's a, a small percentage of success, but I find that small percentage of success, plus your repeat clients, plus, you know, your retainers, like all of that adds up to to a, a decent living. And then, yeah, just uh, I am forgetful. So I do use all my organizational tools as much as I can. So, Sue, I'm curious uh, if I were just starting out as a writer and I'm thinking, well, okay, I'd like to dip my toes into content. You mentioned storytelling as yeah. part of it, but like what makes good content? What's your process for making sure that what you deliver at the end is really going to engage audiences and build authority and, and all of the things that good content does? I think what you just said in your question, think about the audience, right? Is like, who am I writing this for? And sometimes you'll be able to know if you're writing for a magazine, you can have clues as to who the audience is, right? So really dig down into like reading all the past stories that um, have been written in the section or area that you're writing about, really thinking about audience, and then taking a look at even if you're writing for a corporate client, what are all their um, blog posts, past blog posts about structure, that kind of thing. So getting a sense of the rhythm. I also like to look at uh, competitors and see what kinds of topics and, and approaches they're taking and that kind of thing. So really understand a new uh, client's content landscape and then to think about new and interesting ways of, of covering that content, right? So usually, as I mentioned, I do like to think about how I can find a subject matter expert. So often that's provided by the client that I'm working for. So if there's somebody that I I can interview, I'd much rather put the information and content in their mouth. And so I'll try to find somebody that I can interview on the topic. I find that makes for a much richer uh, piece because um, there's so much out there uh, that's recycled these days, right? If you look at any medical website, you'll see like the same copy over and over. Um, and I feel like who is adding to the new content out there, right? Like creating this podcast right now, you're adding to new content, right? So I'm, I'm like always trying to find the new source of content to add into my piece uh, and then using that to, I do the usual outline structure, trying to think of what's a great lead, all of the pieces of journalism, right? Trying to think of like, what's an evocative opening that will pull the reader in? Um, what kind of information do I need to include in order that the reader's on the same page and can understand the content fully? What are any new insights that my uh, reader uh, would be interested in and what are any kind of takeaways uh, basically how can this piece of content make my reader's life better right so whether it's like learning something or new new viewpoint or that kind of thing to make a, a content piece that will stick out in their mind 
So where do you go? Where do you recommend we go to find those new sources of content? Um, in terms of what kinds of blogs should people look at or just like to be, what can we do to enrich our content so that we know we're pulling in new sources rather than just recycling and repurposing everything on the internet? I just do a lot of reading pretty widely. So I look at a variety of magazines and newspapers. I subscribe old school to uh, a good handful of uh, magazines. And so I guess I'm constantly reading to look for new approaches, new ways of doing things. And um, yeah, so to just keep reading and keep looking for inspiration and then look at crossover inspiration, right? I might read something in a trade magazine that would make uh, a neat, opening or lead for a a general interest magazine or vice versa, right? I might see something on Instagram, not on there as much as some people, but like might see something on there that would um, inspire me as a way, as an approach to something. So I I feel like there's a lot of value in crossing over genres and, um, you know, getting inspiration from all sources. All right, James. So let's break in here. I'm curious, as you've been listening to the first half of this episode, what has stood out to you the most? Well, the very first thing that grabbed my attention was that when she talked about how, uh, you know, unfortunately, her magazine folded and we lost all our jobs. And it sounds like she entered freelancing the same way I did. <laughs> and and me too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I liked that. And uh, it's something that I've always kind of told people or you know brought up when people get worried about the security of of what we're doing and i i really think that in so many ways freelancing is more secure than putting your all all your eggs in one basket like that yeah talk about that for a second like why is it more secure well i mean assuming you don't just have one client although even if you do uh the odds of you know all of your clients firing you at once is probably you know very, it's very unlikely. And, um, even if, if you do lose your only one client, you're sort of the de facto position is I'm a person who finds clients and gets work. And it's not the same as being unemployed. Somehow you're employed in your business. You just don't have clients right now. And that's like a legitimate posture to be in versus like saying you're between jobs, which is really just code for, Oh, geez, please give me a job. Yeah. I I like that reframing of it. Um, because it does often feel like, um, while we're between clients, it's different from being unemployed or being without a job. It's just, I'm not quite successful yet in finding that next client or that next project. And I think that observation goes along with just that whole idea that Sue was talking about of stretching out this thing that we do into a career, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and making it last for decades. And, doing it by like staying on top of the changes that come to the industry that you work in or um, the trends that you see going on in marketing. And, you know, as Sue was talking about that, it just kind of got me thinking about how do we do that? Uh, You know, do we follow, you know, people like trendhunter.com, you know, in order to see trends that are just like overall general, how we uh, focus oftentimes in our niches. And I think even as category experts, you know, when we get to know a niche or even a client really, really well, we start to see things sometimes before our clients see them coming. And we can, you know, if we're doing our jobs right, we can help prepare them for changes. We can help suggest things that might 
help them get ahead of the curve. So um, I think, you know, looking at this as I'm not just here for a little while, but I am really here to become a subject matter expert really serves our clients well. I totally agree. I really wish I could give you the proper attribution for this, but I just recently read the concept that, that becoming a marketer or sorry, following down a niche specifically is becoming a master at answering one question. Like, like thinking of, of your niche as, as you mastering, like, I know how to answer this question better than anyone else. I think that's really interesting um, because especially if you're focused on a specific problem in your niche, you know, it's like, hey, I fix retention or, you know, I am the person who's really good at uh, onboarding sequences or sales pages or whatever. Like the better you get at that thing, yeah, the more you can actually bring to the table for your client. So I like the way you said that. I wish I knew who said it. Actually, yeah, me first. too. Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't yeah, me. Whoever said it first, if they're listening, they should they should let us know. That's right. Yeah. So Sue also talked a lot about like the value of content. Um, and it's kind of interesting because we, and I know we've talked on the podcast a little bit recently about the salary survey that we've done a few years in a row. And there's an, a recurring theme every year. Content writers make less money than copywriters. And you know, there, I, I think there's all kinds of reasons that that happens. The biggest one may be that it's really oftentimes a challenge to tie revenue back to content. You know, if it's a, a case study or a white paper that somebody picks up and then, you know, they start engaging with a company and eventually they buy, sometimes without automated software like, you know, a HubSpot or Mercado or, or something like that, it's really difficult to sometimes tie that back. Um, but that doesn't mean that that content isn't valuable. And it doesn't mean that sometimes that content is the thing that sells people on you. And so as copywriters, we need to get better at drawing those lines for our clients, whether it's by using automations and technology that helps establish those connections, or even just making some assumptions about sales funnels, numbers, you know, who sees what and how many of those end up closing. Like we need to be asking our clients more about those numbers in order to be able to draw those lines really tightly in order, again, to charge more and to, and to charge for the value that as content writers would create for our clients. Yeah, that's a really good point. That connects back to that being the master of, of the answer to a question too, right? Like, you know, you know how to answer it. Like, you know what to think about when you're thinking about that question. And I mean, I, I'm sure this has happened to you too, but I've often had times where I start out with a sort of discovery call and we realize that they're, they're not ready to start yet because they haven't dug into those numbers or they, things aren't set up to sort of answer the questions in a way that would make what we do useful. Yeah, agreed. What else stood out to you, James? It was kind of on the subject of content as opposed to copy. I thought it was interesting because I thought a lot of her perspectives on copy from the perspective of a content writer were similar to my perspectives on content from the perspective of a copywriter. Uh, I think they're more alike than we think, I guess is what I'm saying. And uh, you know, she made a, a, a mention of instead of dreaming it all up like a copywriter might do. And I thought, no, that's not what copywriters do. And, and she talked about how she likes to interview people and put people at the center of the story. And I'm like, that's what I do. You know, I, I try to interview customers. I try to use their words. I try to, you know, it's a person, it's a reader, not the interviewee who's at the center of the story, but it's the same human-based story-centric mentality. So I thought that was interesting that she thought that that was something that 
That was why she liked writing content. It's interesting too, because, uh, and I know I've said this a few other times, either on the podcast, in our Facebook group, I, I think I might've had a, not really an argument, but a discussion with Sarah Griesenbach about this at one of our recent IRLs, um, where we were talking about the difference between copy and content. And honestly, I don't think there's a difference. I think copywriting includes content writing and that content writers can write copy. Uh, I mean, I, I can see why some employers like to differentiate Maybe because what we were talking about earlier, they can charge less for content or they can pay less for content <laughs> than, than they do for copy. But, uh, you know, when I started out my career in an ad agency, the copywriter was the, you know, we didn't have content writers and copywriters. We had copywriters and the copywriters wrote the packaging and they wrote the website and they wrote the brochures and they wrote the end cap, the grocery store, and they wrote the menu, you know, the paper menu at the restaurant. Like if it had copy on it, the copywriters wrote it and some of that copy was content as we would define it today. Some of that copy was sales oriented. So, you know, but to me, it's all copy. And, you know, I think if you went back to some of the, the great copywriters of the past, the Ogilvy's of the world, they, they would probably laugh at that division because ultimately content sells. Uh, it's, it's moving that relationship with the client forward in some way. It's, it's, you know, uh, helping the brand establish itself. Like all of those things that content does are part of the sales funnel. It's just, you know, maybe like, like we were saying earlier, it's just not as easy to draw that line to revenue. On that note, another thing that she said that I thought was interesting was she saw copy as the more regular work versus content. Whereas I've always thought, you know, like you write your website once and then you hire someone to write blogs for you regularly type of thing. Yeah, I, I noticed the same thing. Like to me, content feels like there's more ongoing opportunities. You know, a sales page ought to work. Like once you dial it in, it could work for three, five years, right? Or or a sales sequence going out. You know, as long as you're um, sending it to new people, uh, could easily work again for three or five years. Whereas to me, it feels like content ages faster as well. Uh, now, of course, case studies, white papers, those could also last for years. They're definitely content that um, that lasts. But uh, I, yeah, I noticed the same thing. So uh, maybe it's just a case of the grass is always greener, you know, <laughs> where, yeah, where, whatever work you're not doing. So one other thing that I want to touch base on is just that idea around good content you know, how do we create good content? And I think Sue shared a couple of really good ideas, like, you know, trying to find an original take, trying to find the things that are new and interesting. Um, you know, in addition to that, I think that writers can go deeper than what they see out there. So much of the content that, um, you know, appears in Google searches or whatever, it's really light. It, you know, it's very um, surface level and it doesn't go deep. It doesn't, Oftentimes the how isn't explained and, and oftentimes that's because they're trying to sell the how or the, the thing that does the how. But uh, I think there's so many opportunities for copywriters and content writers to create content that is new and interesting or different or deeper um, than the typical, you know, five ways to, you know, write a headline stuff that is just so old and, and just not even click onable anymore. If click onable is even a word. <laughs> it is now. Yeah, it is now. So I, James, is there anything like when you're writing and you do some content as part of your work, like what do you do to, to try to find the stuff that's new and interesting? Well, I mean, going back to that interviewing thing, I, I think a lot of the, the best ideas for me come from following little things that someone said 
in an interview, you, you know, you, you try and triangulate, try and find all the things that people have in common when you're writing copy. But if I was here to write content, I think that's where you'd look for the things that people had different from each other, um, where you can see these like little different perspectives on what problem led a person to do a thing or what, you know, what benefits they had to their life. I feel like that's where you end up with a larger sort of set of ideas that you can play around with. And it's kind of like spinoffs, right? You can write a spinoff for any character in, in a story if you want to. You just need to give them, you know, the focus time. So I think that that's kind of how I think about it. Like, wh what are the sort of second tier set of bullet points that didn't make it to the final, you know, the podium, as it were? Uh, and, and all of those, any of those are rife for posts or blog posts or social media posts or, you know. I like that. I feel like there's a golden nugget in there that, you know, writing for sales copy, you're looking for the thing, all the commonalities. So you're hitting the broadest market. But when you start looking at content, you're looking for the differences. That That's probably an idea that should be a piece of content somewhere online. <laughs> we'll have to ask Sue to write it. That's right. Let's get back into the interview with Sue and hear how she went from writing for tech to writing for higher ed. You mentioned that you started out writing for tech uh, and then kind of got bored with that and have moved into other niches. How have you decided uh, um, on the niches that you've worked in? You know, what was the thought process that led you to where you are today writing in higher ed? Yeah, I think it's always got to be something that I feel a passion for and that also is practical. So that describes my personality in a nutshell. I will be like really interested in something, but at the same time, I'm realistic about what this world is like, right? And I know that if I want to keep continuing with my first love, which is writing independently, then I can't pick a niche like I always joke to my students like, crafting. I'm sure there's somebody who's in the crafting niche or in, you know, some uh, tiny little niche who is doing amazing at it because that's their passion. And yes, follow your passion. If it were up to me, I probably be, would be reviewing books all the time. That's not how I can make a living, right? So for me, it's been like identifying. I truly am interested in tech and knew a little bit more about it when I started out because I had started out actually creating uh, as another part of my business websites for other writers. So I taught myself HTML and Notepad and then was working in Dreamweaver like a, um, a web platform. And as I was doing that, that, you know, like made me interested. I'm, I've always been curious about how to figure things out. So that was sparking my interest there. And I identified in 2002, there were a lot of tech publications. So I thought, yeah, could I do this? Yes. And this is an area where uh, it would be, uh, I would be able to make money. And then at the same time, I would be bored by writing these stories uh, every day. Um, with the um, careers niche, I just, I thought it was an interesting, I think I got like a first gig at, at a magazine about uh, careers. And I thought this is really interesting to write about this and, and explore it. And so I was writing about uh, careers for a couple of um, markets for a while um, and, and, you know, looking for other corporate clients, that kind of thing. Um, I try to identify a niche where there's enough players in it to both uh, write for publications and then also to uh, write for corporate. In the case of the higher ed, I just really thought maybe at the point of finishing the PhD, like my expertise and um, deep knowledge of the academic system, everything from teaching and pedagogy to um 
writing grants for myself made me understand what the academic process is like because I'd been immersed in that world for four years and uh, so sort of pitch myself that way um, but also because there was the opportunity for stories right what who else has like a bunch of magazines that you can write for than academia right where they're trying to keep in touch with their alumni and and share their research and stuff like that so I, I thought I saw it as an interesting uh, niche to pursue for those reasons. Okay, so let's say I just want to get started and I want to make money. I'm like passion and interest is less important right now because I'm a new copywriter, new content writer. So out of the place, the spaces that you've worked in, what would you recommend today that's more viable and just kind of easier to jump into as a newer writer? Um, one niche that I think is really interesting uh, and up and coming is gaming and esports, right? They, they used to, there never used to be like a reviews and sections on gaming uh, in the newspaper, and, and now there is. Uh, esports has really become uh, an interesting big um, big place to write for. So now there are places to write for in that uh, space where there never was before. I think in the environment, you know, I would say like 10 years ago or even five years ago, there's not that many environmental publications. Now there are. And so like, if that is something that you're interested in writing about, whereas 10 years, I would say 10 years ago, I would have said, good luck with that. Now I think there are places to write for. And there are even, you know, so it, it fits both my criteria. Are there, are there publications, which to me suggests that there are um, people interested in reading about that topic. Uh, publications being, uh, you know, more online these days, but um, online or print. And then the other criteria being, is there a corporate um, marketplace for it, right? So in the case of climate change and, and environment, I think there is a lot of interest uh, in businesses, right? And becoming like more sustainable and that kind of thing. So I think sustainability is a really interesting place if I were starting out as a writer today and you know I think <laughs> topics that the right person can get behind right I know some students who are like gamers and whereas you know 10 years ago I was said good luck with that today I'm like yeah get in there because I feel like it's a niche that I see up and coming I feel like even tech has like there's a certain a few more publications than there used to be five years ago working on tech, uh, at least in Canada. And so I think, you know, if you were the one who said, you know what, I'm going to be the gaming person and I'm going to contact and make a, make a list like I do, make a spreadsheet of all of the gaming companies across Canada or across the States and just start reaching out to them. I think there'd be a career there. Are there any bad niches or bad topics that you would want to avoid? I feel like there's uh, no, uh, I think the bigger ones, like the ones that come to us naturally, right? Like finance, I think is, you know, you can see there's a lot of banks out there and they need to communicate on a regular basis. That's always been an amazing niche to me. Um, healthcare has always been an amazing niche because there's like a ton of, uh, again, organizations, not as much a ton of magazines, um, but a ton of organizations that serve that niche. So somebody who's a healthcare or finance writer, I think they have like a, good diverse niche to work in. I always say um, jokingly that there's nothing, uh, you know, there's not a niche in uh, like handicrafts or uh, book reviews or theater reviews, almost even worse. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like if there's that one person, like I, I try to like 
I, I tell my students that I, I'm trying to be not be a dream killer. And so like, if it is your absolute dream to work for and do theater writing all your whole life, there is one person in Canada who is a theater reviewer. There's one person at the national newspaper. If you want to be that guy, then go be that guy, but just understand it's going to be hard. Right. So I don't think there are any, um, like, bad niches if you're determined enough, but I think you also have to be open-minded enough, right? If I was going to, if I was totally determined to be a, a theater writer and, you know, I might be at some point, I really like that niche, really like going to theater. I would look up all of the theaters across Canada and open my mind to not just writing theater reviews for newspapers, because I think that's not a way to make a living, but maybe like working on theater blogs for like cool little theaters across Canada that could use more attention or like applying for an arts funding grant that will allow you to help um, a theater develop a communications plan. Um, I think there's lots of ways of doing that. You just have to be open-minded about how to move into these different niches. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to make your life a little bit easier, choose a niche that is uh, big and has a lot of client potential. So since we started working with you in the think tank, um, we've seen you uh, really focus on your business development and just making so many improvements to your business. I'm, I'm just curious uh, how you approached it and what you prioritized um, because listeners might be able to think through kind of the same process, especially if they've been in business for a while. Yeah, so I joined Think Tank because I was feeling stuck. And I am an overthinker and I can go round and around myself about the kinds of decisions and what to move ahead with next. And so I thought it would be really helpful to finally talk to a coach after 20 years and get some perspective and be able to bounce my decisions off. And, you know, instead of bouncing off to the same few colleagues that I do who are basically having the same issues and, and that kind of thing, I know that. Um, you, Rob and Kiri, have like heard so many things and seen so many businesses. So like benefiting from your experience of seeing what works and that kind of thing, as well as your own experience as writers. I think that was um, what tipped me over the edge to join. And then I really like when I joined the group, the, just the high level ambition uh, that I've seen in the group, you know, everybody being... This on the same interest of growing the business. Hey, you know, if you're at 100k, why not grow to 200k? I love that uh, ambition and that uh, that drive. And then um, I think in terms of my business, it's helped me to think about get unstuck about some things. I've always been somebody who like moves ahead and tries new things, but at the same time, it's just like deciding which things to move ahead with and try uh, out. One of the things that I moved ahead with uh, was. Um, launching my feisty freelancer website, which is my teaching business. Um, I have been a, a college teacher for 15 years and that's been great, but I'd like to find out ways that I could possibly do it myself. So I started this uh, exploration and experimentation of offering my own courses, you know, as a freelancer. And then I'm at the beginning of this exploration. So who knows what form it will take. Um, I'd love to teach students who are newcomers to freelancing. And uh, I've launched a, a course, uh, the Feisty Freelancer Intensive, to help students uh, figure out this world of freelancing that I've been doing for 20 years and, uh, and write their first assignment. So 
that's one course that I've uh, moved ahead with. I'm open to exploring other opportunities, you know, teaching um, people in corporate organizations, like how to be better content writers, that kind of thing. And so it's something that uh, I had started off uh, writing an ebook for my students in a course called The Feisty Freelancer. And I thought, what if I could do more with this brand? And so being in Think Tank has helped me to move ahead with that and, and get some advice on how do I launch a course and figure all that out. So it's, I'm in the middle of it. It's interesting to, to keep the experiment going. Yeah, I love the brand Feisty Freelancer. I think it's a great name and a lot of us could use more feisty. But tell us a little bit about what you teach in the course. Well, I mean, you've been teaching for a long time, so not you maybe it's also what do you teach your college students, but you know, what kinds of things do you cover when you're talking about, you know, being that feisty freelancer? Yeah, so in the Feisty Freelancer course, I teach how to get your started with your business, basically all the things that my students ask me when I'm teaching the course uh, where I teach a freelance unit. And so they all want to know, how do I be a freelancer? How do I start up my business? How do I send a pitch? They, you know, are newcomers to this world and don't know like the world of magazines. They don't know how to even pitch a client, don't know how to figure out what the client needs and that kind of thing. So I review all that kind of business development, business startup kind of thing. How do I register a business? Do I need to charge any tax and that kind of thing? So all the basics of the business. And then also usually a writer needs to get some confidence through practicing that. So I, in that free freelancer course, I um, have them develop an assignment, usually an article, and uh, just, you know, start out from beginning to end. We, we go through everything from how do you create a great article to how to um, work on your writing process, work on your time management, um, how to get things done through uh, writing exercises and that kind of thing. So by the end of the course, they have their first sample the pitch and then they also have some greater confidence and knowledge of that realm. It's uh, drawing on a lot of the skills that I've taught over the years. Um, I've been teaching everything from writing different forms from blogs to reports uh, to um, I used to teach a course uh, uh, on workplace writing which is like how to write good emails for inter-office emails and uh, which I think is a, a learned skill because like it's not natural I learned a lot when I was learning to teach that course about how to write an email that's clear and concise and that kind of thing so um, yeah workplace writing I think everybody could stand to be a better better writer of, of just general workplace stuff like uh, emails and reports and that kind of thing so all that experience um, has been helpful to me as a writer and then also um, trying to pass it along especially the freelance stuff to uh, to people who want to do what I do because I like doing it okay so as a workplace writer let's say I have to send a memo to Rob how can I communicate um, better with Rob as my coworker? Because I don't think I'm always a great communicator. So what advice or tips would you give me? This is going to be a really, really good answer, I think. <laughs> that surprises me, Kira, because I know like you're the email queen. But I, uh, I think just clarity and organizing the information, the things that I learned was just like to make a very specific subject line and one that would be opened um, to use um, bullets and white space and make your message very direct and clear. So I find, uh, you know, I, I no longer write 
two paragraph wall, I call it wall of text emails. I write emails with a lot more spacing and a lot more line breaks and uh, bullets where possible, right? I, I think, you know, you want to make, it's the same thing as any kind of writing. You want to, if you're writing uh, marketing stuff, you want to make the call to action clear. What's the call to action in your email? What do you, what's the one thing you want the person to do? Maybe bold that <laughs> and then they'll actually pay attention to it. So I imagine somebody listening might be thinking, okay, so you've had success as this, but you've got a master's degree and a PhD. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to do this, you know, who maybe doesn't have those advantages, maybe doesn't even have, uh, you know, a a regular uh, college degree, but still wants to succeed as a content writer, you know, is, is that educational credential even necessary? I would say no. I have done, I started freelancing without any of those. And I have, uh, you know, done my business in tandem with um, getting my degrees. I would say like, uh, those are not necessary for uh, developing a career as a freelance writer. But some of the things that uh, do cross over, like I would say, actually, it's the soft skills, like um, the tenacity to get a PhD done. There's a lot of effort and time at desk there. And I put the same effort and time at desk into my business. And so I think like if you have the determination to keep going on something, I think it's actually what made me a successful PhD is like I got through the degree in four years, which is unusual because um, that degree can sometimes expand and expand. And it's because I was used to freelancing. I mean, I was running my business at, at a slightly scaled back capacity at the time, but like my workday is a nine to five. And uh, I'm at my desk by nine o'clock. That's one of my almost always uh, things that I do. And so when uh, some of my fellow PhDs were struggling with those wide open days of like creating the dissertation, I'm like, what? We're at work. We're at nine to five and we're working (laughs) on our dissertations. Right. And then I produced a 300 page document and that's how you can do it like in two years kind of thing. But I think uh, the skills that cross over are um, being able to, you know, make a plan, stay organized and, do the work um, to come up with that viable niche and then do the work to reach out to the clients that you want as your clients, as your dream and ideal clients. And I think uh, if you do that and, and you're persistent and you have a little bit of a work ethic and then, you know, that includes being willing to develop your writing, um, then that's the way to create a writing business without any education at all. So you are a professor. You've been a professor for how many years? 15. 15 years as a professor. So I just pretend to be a professor on the internet, but you are (laughs) an actual professor. So what can you teach us, um, especially for anyone who's in a teaching role or a mentoring role or a coaching role? What has helped you really um, improve your teaching skills over the years that we could pull from? Well, I guess my biggest personal development has been to learn better public speaking. So I actually took Toastmasters even before I started teaching because I I was and am a nervous public speaker. And so improving and working on that, that has come over time and practice. I think that has helped me to be a better communicator in the classroom. One of the things I like about teaching is how creative it is. So like, you know, it's one thing to write a blog post, but like, how do you tell somebody how to write a blog post, right? So like thinking about how to do it 
creatively, but also how to do it with, um, have them do it basically. So I use the, uh, to use some teaching uh, jargon, the flip classroom approach where you're trying to, you know, give them the reading first and then mostly in class you're practicing the stuff, right? And I find like, I try to never give an assignment that is not useful somewhere else, right? So if I'm giving them an assignment for students assignment for a practice, it'll always be something that they could use, maybe put in their portfolio, maybe develop into an assignment kind of thing. I'm never going to um, create uh, busy work for them. I've had students come to class and say, oh, I got an opportunity to cover something outside of class as a journalist. I'm like, go, what are you doing in my class? You should go and do that, right? So I always try to make the stuff that they're working on in class relevant, uh, portfolio building, and then you know the skills development to, um, to create something that it will be productive uh, for them. And then I, I also think that, you know, developing that sense of community where you can in the classroom or online or that kind of thing can be really helpful to people's learning, being able to practice things themselves and then uh, work on it in community and have that kind of support to, to share and, and show everybody what they can do. So, Sue, if you were able to go back 20 years to when you were just starting out as the writer or whatever, could give yourself some advice, something to do differently, something to do better, what would you say to yourself? Um, probably to even identify sooner, like what my ideal niches are and, um, you know, take even more uh, writing courses. And I've done a lot of DIY learning over the years, which has served me pretty well. You know, I taught myself HTML. I, you know, I've taken workshops on how to learn specific skills, but I think like taking a class on social media development when it came, I think, uh, would be helpful. Um, I think something I did right is like finding ways to differentiate myself, you know, so I use my HTML skills to get my first internship, that kind of thing. Um, I try to continue to do that. If I find an area that is uh, new to develop, try to figure out how I can get in there. But nowadays I do it more like only if it suits me, right? So social media has come up and other people are taking care of that. So I don't always have to. And, uh, and so to be a little bit more focused, I think that's one of my challenges is always to figure out like what is the thing that fits for me and I don't always have to do all the things. I think part of being in the think tank has made me think more about content is my thing. And so now when somebody throws away the blog post, I'm like, I'll do the blog posts and uh, really embrace that. So as you're moving forward in your business, you're doing all these right things um, you're, that you shared with us. Uh, what are you most excited about at this point in your business? I'm excited about, yeah, leaning into content. I'd like to do more content strategy and help people figure out uh, ways that content can help to improve their business. I just like moving ahead with the storytelling elements. Uh, I'd like to move ahead with like figuring out how to make the feisty freelancer work and educate the next generation uh, about that. I like... Um, writing long form to the point where I like uh, writing books like I did in my thesis. I did a ghost book a few years ago. I'd love to do another one of them. I'd like to figure out other ways to do long form content uh, and just keep moving ahead with that, finding new client pools that, uh, that work for me and allow me to still do that kind of storytelling. Sue, are you ready for lightning round? Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want your best advice that you'd give to maybe some of your students um, to help them lean into the life of a writer 
so that they're productive, so that they're consistent, so they're tenacious like you. Are there any best practices that you've learned over the years that could help us? Uh, Nine to five, get yourself a schedule. It doesn't have to be nine to five, but whatever it is, try to check in at the same time every day. I'm pretty rigorous about my break schedule as well. I always take a lunch hour, a half hour, I should say, and I always watch some TV during it so that I have a full break away and my mind is fresh when I come back at the end of the day. Oh, I love the break. (laughs) An hour break, lunch break. That's brilliant. Okay. Um, And uh, uh, I'm thinking of other... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just had a good one. You can tell it's the end of the day because my mind is <laughs> running wild at this point. Rob, other lightning round question. What is something fast? All my questions yeah, are going to be lengthy. So what what do you like to um, sit down with? You know, you've got your cup at the end of the day, you're relaxing. What are you turning on Netflix or Amazon Prime or what are you watching? Oh, I thought you said, what are you drinking? What are you yeah, watching? no, not, not what are you drinking? I don't know what you're watching. Oh, uh, I am a 35 year Coronation Street watcher. So that's, uh, that's my daily dose. Uh, You know, if it's, uh, if it's not that it's something on Netflix. Okay. All right. And last question for lightning round that you've been such a good sport about. Um, What does the future of copywriting and content writing look like? Or if you just want to lean into content writing, that's fine. But what does the future of writing look like for all of us? Wow, that's a big lightning round question. <laughs> and uh, I hope it's right. I mean, I always tell my students like, yeah, I'm sad that uh, maybe magazines and newspapers aren't doing that well these days, but our, our use of text has exploded, right? We are like the written word is everywhere now. And thanks to text and thanks to email and that, thanks to newsletters, I'm excited to see what's coming next, right? I think I see all these things rising and I'm always cheering for new types of content, uh, new ways of creating and that kind of thing. So I think it's pretty bright that way. And uh, I'm like, cheers to the experimenters. And I hope to experiment myself with new ways and and try to get in on them if I can. I like it. So Sue, somebody wants to connect with you, get to know you, hop on your list, check out Feisty Freelancer, any of those things, where should they go? Great. Yes, I have. uh, My business is Codeword Communications. I'm online at codeword.ca. That's CA for Canada. That's where I am. And uh, my feisty freelancers, feistyfreelancer.com. If you want to go and check those out, I would be happy to hear from you. And you are definitely one of the more tenacious writers I know. When I think of tenacious, I definitely think of you just evolving in your business, experimenting, um, testing, and continuing to challenge yourself to grow in your career. I think it's really inspiring. So thank you, Sue, for being a part of this podcast and giving us your time today. Yeah, thanks, Sue. That's the end of our interview with Sue Bonus. So one thing that stood out to me, James, as I was listening back through the second half of this interview was that uh, first, like her example, esports and gaming and the, you know, like how that has become this opportunity. And as I was listening to that, I'm like, I can't think of anything I want to write about less than esports <laughs> and gaming. So I guess it's good that there's an opportunity out there for other people who love that stuff. I, I mean, it's not that I don't even love gaming or whatever, but I it just like it's so off my radar. Uh, it, it, but it shows like there's such this massive opportunity of of niches and things to write about out there in the world that uh, I mean, there's 
there's so much work out there and so much opportunity to succeed. If you can succeed as a content writer about esports, it feels like you can succeed as, as a writer about anything. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think it's also nice for everyone listening to know that there's there's a niche where you don't have to go toe to toe with Rob Marsh. That's right. Yeah. Or I guess James Turner. No, certainly not for me either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, We're too old, Rob. We're just too old. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, it is it is gratifying to know that if that's your thing, there's so much stuff out there. And, you know, and I know we're, we're, I'm kind of uh, harping a little bit on esports and gaming, but, you know, I would feel the same thing about aeronautics or, uh, you know, um, autom uh, automotive type writing. Like that's not for me either. And so uh, just, you know, leaning into the things that you're interested in, the, the problems that you can solve for clients, uh, there's just a, a, a million opportunities out there. So anybody listening should go after the one they want. Absolutely. I really liked how she talked about choosing a niche. And so Sue writes in her niche of, well, specifically academia, which she's, you know, a member of. She's she's in that world. So, you know, write what you know kind of idea. Um, but I liked how she talked about choosing a niche that was that you were passionate about, but that was also practical. And I, I think that's sort of that Venn diagram, things I care about and things that people might hire me to do. Um, and I also really like that she did give the the shout out to the fact that if you want to be that the, the one person who you know dominates the crafting scene or or the theater review get you know get that one job being the theater reviewer then go for it but just know that it'll be harder. That's smart. I mean, somebody has to be the theater reviewer, right? But but there's only one body at least for you know a, a specific period of time. So you know, I, I asked. Uh, Sue about credentials and like, do you need to go kind of knowing that the answer is no, but I, I think I really want to emphasize this. Um, there are people who are succeeding as copywriters who didn't graduate from high school and who are doing incredibly well, right? The credentials that you need aren't courses. They're not, uh, even though, you know, we sell some courses, uh, they're not masterminds, even though we have a mastermind and, and you can help, but it's the ability to solve a problem. And Sue does a really good job solving this content problem that her that her higher ed clients have, you know, communicating what's going on at their universities with the various audiences that they have in order to increase donations and you know, bring back students and all of the things that, that they do. She's really good at that. But we as copywriters, content writers, the more dialed in we can, like you were saying earlier, that one question, that one problem that you solve uh, makes all the difference. That's the credential you need. Um, having said that, she also talked about getting input from, you know, when, when we we're talking a little bit about the think tank and getting input from somebody who can see your business differently. And that's a little bit different from like courses, um, masterminds, that kind of thing. But there's comes a time when, yeah, you know how to solve the problem. You know how to run a, a, a practical business, but somebody else can come in and, and help you identify places where you can improve things you can do differently, things that you can do better. And that's always or almost always a good thing to be looking for in your business. And sometimes you have to pay for that. Sometimes it comes, you know, from a friendship or a contact or whatever, but having somebody who can give you that aid from time to time is uh, it's a complete difference maker in a business. Totally agree. I, I made that note as well. Just like jo join a group, <laughs> joining a group where she talked about yeah, being in a group of people with high level ambition. And that that's so it. And I remember in my time in the think tank being just, wowed by some of the people around me and being like okay like that's what's possible that's there's nothing stopping me from 
pursuing something as big and audacious as what that person on the other side of the room is doing because they're just like me. They're just here in this group. I mean, you and I met in a group like that. And we did. I, I mean, in some ways, the, we're not all all together, but, you know, there are a few people who reach out and, and talk and chat occasionally. And uh, I pop in there occasionally. Um, but it, it, again, it's a game changer to see other people's businesses or to get that kind of feedback from, you know, a coach when we were together you know, with Joanna. It was the same exact kind of thing where they say, you know, what you need to be doing differently is this or here's three things that you might try if you're not succeeding at that. Uh, and it, yeah, again, it's a, it's a game changer. Definitely. Uh, there was one other thing that I thought was really important and I think it needs surfacing is is the idea of having more than one income stream which is separate from being a freelancer, I think, which, you know, we talked about before, but I, I think it was, I think it's worth noticing that she's also a professor, right? For 15 years of the 20 years that she's also been a freelancer and she's got a course. And so I think it's, it, it's something that I've noticed benefit me is just having, like I, I, I co-run snap copy with Leanna and then I have Turner creative on my own. And it's nice having more than one place where your, your, your livelihood comes from and smart. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I think, I think that's something to think about, like how, how can you diversify your, your income? Yeah. And I mean, I, I know a lot of people, they get into copywriting and when it's within a couple of years, they're like, how do I stop working with clients? To me, that feels a little short-sighted. I mean, sure. There are bad clients out there, but if you move all of your business into something like, you know, courses or, you know, some kind of a, a product, if the demand for that trails off, you've given up this other potential uh, income source, which is client work, and you kind of have to rebuild that pipeline. So even if people are thinking, okay, you know, I, I want to do less client work, I think like you're suggesting having a couple of different income streams, different clients for sure, but um, maybe you have maybe you have some kind of a product that you sell. Uh, maybe you have a, a position, you know, teaching. I know there are a lot of online professorships that are out there. I actually did that for a couple of years uh, at one point, and um, it wasn't a massive boost to my income, uh, but it was a great experience, and and it was another income stream that uh, was bringing some money into my business. Of course, there you know you. There are all kinds of non-copywriting, non-marketing things that you can do as well, you know, owning property and, um, you know, investments, that kind of thing. But something that most copywriters ought to be doing more of and not completely banking on a single source of income and, and support for your business. So Kira asked about improvements, uh, you know, what improvements that Sue had made. And that got me thinking, James, like, what is the biggest change that you've made in your business that delivered the biggest impact? I know Sue shared what she thought. I'm curious about the biggest change in your business. Uh, the biggest change in my business was moving into retainers and trying to make that the way you work with me as opposed to projects. Um, I've had the same great retainer client or anchor client. Sometimes people refer to them as anchor clients um, for, I, I can't remember if it's four or five years, but it's one of those two. <laughs> we started off with a couple of projects and then a need arose and I was the guy to take it and and have been the guy ever since. And so I, I write a lot of their um, email campaigns when they come up. And if they have a webinar, I do all the copy around that. And I, I'm like in involved in the strategy side and I'll end up reviewing content stuff and it's really cool um, 
because we're just developing this relationship and I'm becoming, you know, a, a subject matter expert of their company and, uh, and having stable income, you know, having a, 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 know, a knowing that what I'm going to make as a minimum each month is just great. Yeah. Having that baseline, I think can be uh, freeing in a lot of ways. You know, you're not, you lose a lot of the stress of, okay, am I going to land three clients this month? We're going to have to have you come back and talk about that because uh, a five-year client, four or five-year client, whichever one it is, like that's something else. And, you know, maybe at some point, James, we can have you talk about retainers, how you make them work. And of course, what's changed in your business since the last time we chatted, which was a, a long time ago. A long time ago, yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap, I do want to just uh, point at one other thing. Uh, I loved Sue's rigor around time, the time she works and the breaks that she takes. Uh, I am so undisciplined when it comes to this kind of stuff. And usually it's driven by like, oh, there's a podcast or there's another meeting at noon or whatever. And so I end up eating lunch, you know, at over 15 or 20 minutes at two o'clock in the afternoon or, um, you know, working, you know, past five just because nobody else is home yet. And so I, and uh, I admire what she's doing. I totally get like how that can benefit us. And it's a good reminder to me to maybe be a little bit more disciplined about that. Um, you know, we don't take smoke breaks uh, much anymore, <laughs> you know, the 10, 15 or, you know, three fifteen, whatever, but uh, maybe building in some of that time to just, you know, walk around the yard or, or, uh, you know, up the street or whatever uh, would be helpful. So I'm thinking more about doing some of that. I recommend it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you live in the country where you, you know, walking to, uh, to the end of the road is a, is a bit of a hike. So. Yeah. Well, not, it's not quite like that, but it's it's a nice walk. <laughs> we want to thank Sue Bonus for joining us on the podcast today. If you want to connect with Sue, you can find her at www.codeword.ca, which we'll also link to in the show notes. And you can learn more about her Feisty Freelancer course at feistyfreelancer.com. Like I said in the interview, I love that name. I think it's a, a fun name. If you want to listen to another episode where we dive into content writing, check out episode number 244 with Sarah Griesenbach. I mentioned my disagreement with her earlier. Uh, or episode number 227 with Jacob McMillan. Both of those interviews share a lot about how to make a really good living writing content. And of course, uh, check out the episode featuring my co-host today, James Turner. That was episode number 79. And that was quite a long time ago, James. So we're, we're definitely going to have to bring you back. I'd love to be back. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole